This is HEC Media. The views and opinions expressed in the following program do not reflect the views or opinions of HEC or this station. Today, we begin to celebrate the season. And we continue to draw on our cultural history. Hi, I'm Jerry Kowarski. And I'm Bob Wilcox. Come with us to the theater, and we'll tell you what we've seen from our two seats on the aisle. Welcome to Two on the Isle, the podcast, produced by HEC Media in St. Louis, Missouri. Two on the Isle, the podcast, is an audio version of the televised and webcast program produced every two weeks that features a review of theater and opera productions around the St. Louis area, along with a calendar of theater due to play around the region. The regular hosts of the program, Bob Wilcox and Jerry Kowarski, have been hosting and reviewing all over town for more than 25 years on local cable and more recently on the internet. This podcast is from episode number 515 of the program, originally broadcast on Thursday, November 22nd, 2018, and features reviews of the following shows. Aladdin at the Fox Theater, All is Calm at Mustard Seed Theater, The Great Seduction at the West End Players Guild, Deflator Mouse by Johann Strauss at Winter Opera St. Louis, Every Brilliant Thing by Duncan McMillan at RS Theatrics, a Most Outrageous Fit of Madness by Nancy Bell at Shakespeare Festival St. Louis, Away in a Basement at The Playhouse at Westport Plaza, Dr. Faustus or the Modern Prometheus at SAIT, and finally Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury at the Webster University Conservatory. Now to start our reviews for this episode, here's Bob Wilcox. The Disney musical Aladdin has evolved very nicely since its pre-Broadway appearance at the Muni six years ago. The road company, now at the Fox, has no camels clumping across the (laughs) stage, but it does have a flying carpet that is truly a wonder, flying up and down and back and forth and around, and try as hard as I could, I could not spot the wires that must have been holding it up. I think it may be the most successful translation of an animated Disney feature to the live theater in part because it doesn't have to try to make human actors pretend to be animals or mythological creatures. Director and choreographer Casey Nicola and his splendid cast perform slapstick and acrobatics that are equally funny and even more impressive when done by real live people. Director Nicola, book writer Chad Begulin, and the whole production do an amazing job of balancing the romance and thrills of the story which younger audiences can enjoy straight, with well-placed nudges and winks for those of us who know that it's all just about having fun. Aladdin's three friends rush to the palace to free him when the evil Grand Vizier has imprisoned him. They're attacked by a dozen palace guards. It's three to one odds, but the friends perform all those incredible feats of swordplay that thrilled us in the movies when we were kids. But of course, they are captured in the end, though I couldn't tell you how the guards overcame them after being putty in their hands for so long. But they must be taken to the prison so they, with Aladdin, can be freed by the genie, a force of nature and consummate entertainer embodied by Webster grad Michael James Scott. Then Aladdin can marry the Princess Jasmine, a budding feminist determined to marry the man she wants, not the one her father the Sultan picks out. And the wicked vizier can then do the wicked witch melting bit. 
The set for the Cave of Wonders, loaded with riches, may be the most visually dense set I have seen, but designer Bob Crowley keeps our eyes happy throughout with romantic Middle Eastern patterns, along with Natasha Katz's lights and the lovely pastel blends of many of Greg Barnes's costumes. Alan Menken has the gift that lifts his musicals on song. Tim Rice and Chad Begulin have added lyrics to those of the late Howard Ashman. I went to Aladdin fearing I would have to endure treacle for the kiddies, but I had a very good time. Well, I did too. Yes, let's hear some of the music. Six years ago, Mustard Seed Theater started a holiday tradition when it presented All is Calm, the Christmas Truce of 1914. It was brilliantly staged and profoundly moving. Mustard Seed revived the production in the next three seasons, but went in another direction last year. This year, All is Calm is back in conjunction with the reopening of the Soldiers Memorial, where the first performances took place. The remainder of the run is at the Fontbonne Theater. If you still haven't seen All is Calm, you should be very thankful for this opportunity. This year's edition is as inspiring as ever. The subject of the play is the truce that broke out spontaneously in no man's land on the first Christmas Eve of World War I. The participants tell the story themselves in excerpts from letters, diaries, and other historical records. Ordinary soldiers of all ranks have their say, along with some well-known figures. In between the readings are songs for the season or the occasion. The creators of All is Calm were two companies in the Twin Cities, Theater La Da and the vocal ensemble Cantus. Mustard Seed supplemented Peter Rothstein's script and Eric Lichty and Timothy C. Takash's musical arrangements with a magnificent staging by Deanna Gent. This year's cast includes Kent Koffel, Anthony Heineman, Christopher Hickey, Greg Lawman, Gary Love, Michael Lowe, Sean Michael, Abraham Shaw, and Jeff Wright. They sing beautifully a cappella under Joe Shane's musical direction. Heineman stands out as a tenor from the Paris Opera. Gent's direction and Richard Lewis's dialect coaching help the actors make each character a compelling individual. Their interactions exemplify the bonds uniting soldiers at war, even soldiers on opposite sides of the battle lines, which were established by Kara Bishop's set, Michael Sullivan's lighting, Meg Brinkley's props, and Jane Sullivan's costumes. All is Calm has enthralled me each time I've seen it. Once again, I recommend it without reservation. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and the blend of voices is lovely to hear. And we should hear some of it.
playwright Vladimir Zelovinsky admits that his play The Great Seduction is increasingly freely adapted from Mademoiselle de Belle-Ile by Alexandre Dumas. Dumas surely was familiar with La Closse's Les Liaisons Dangerous. All three share the basic contrivance of a plot with two couples, one older, one younger. The older are or perhaps have been, lovers, the younger are just getting acquainted. The older man, fancying himself a great lover, declares that he can seduce the younger woman within 24 hours. He makes a bet with the younger man that he can do so, not realizing that the younger couple have become well enough acquainted to develop a relationship. By moving the time of Dumas' comedy from the early 18th century to the late 18th century, Zelovinsky ends the play with a world historical event that brings joy to one character and extreme distress to others. Until that point, The Great Seduction has been a comedy, sharing the character of the English restoration comedies, worldly and witty, less cynical, I would say, than the closest dark piece, and Zelovinsky does borrow from Shakespeare a trick that seems to clear the way for the play to have a happy ending. The cast of the West End Players Guild savor the pleasure their characters take in their intelligence, attractiveness, confidence, and privilege, and the actors' own satisfaction in skillfully sharing these characters with the audience. Director Steve Callahan has set the tone. Heather Sarton enjoys the full range of this style. Her character, the Countess de Bourbon, reacts at every instant with a glance of the eye, a shrug of the shoulder, a turn of the head, ever in command, though rarely opposite. Obviously so. Jason Myers, Duke de Richelieu, the Countess's lover, is quite full of himself. Not unpleasantly so. He's not one to carry a grudge. But he brings to this play some of the Laclos play's nasty amorality. As the young object of his desire, Gracie Sarton is sweet innocence as Gabrielle de Belleisle come to Paris to free her father from the Bastille, if she can. Alex files Raoul d'Aubigny endures the joys and pains of young love, and Rachel Bailey adds to the enjoyment as that essential character in these plays, the clever maid. Ken Clark's set is one of the most elegant I've seen on the Guild stage, with properties by Danny Mann that suit it well-lighted by Nathan Schrader. Tracy Newcomb's costumes embrace the splendor of the period. Michael Perkins designed the sound. I was pleasantly seduced by the Guild's The Great Seduction. As was I. Good. Well, we'd better be careful. <laughs> <laughs> you can follow all things Two on the Isle on Facebook by searching for Two on the Isle and liking the page. And you can be the first to see the reviews on YouTube by subscribing to the Two on the Isle channel and checking the notification bell. Again, you can find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching for Two on the Isle. Deflator Mouse takes this title from the German word for bet. That's why a bet was projected on the curtain during the overture in Winter Opera's recent staging of the great operetta by Johann Strauss Jr., the dancing bet drew the first of many laughs in this splendid production. Mm. The plot of Deflator Mouse is complicated. The source of the complexity is one of the characters, Dr. Falca. Three years before the operetta begins, Falca was dressed as a bat for a costume party. He was also in his cups, allowing his friend Eisenstein to make Falca the bat the butt of a practical joke in public. Falca plans to take his revenge on his friend, on the night Eisenstein is supposed to report to jail to serve a brief sentence for a minor offense. Falca persuades Eisenstein to skip going to jail 
and to go instead to a ball given by Prince Orlovsky, where Eisenstein pretends to be a French aristocrat. Also attending the ball at Falke's behest are Eisenstein's wife, Rosalinda, disguised as a Hungarian countess, Rosalinda's maid, Adele, and a dress purloined from her mistress, and Frank, the warden of the jail, where Eisenstein is supposed to serve a sentence. Frank thinks he has already arrested Eisenstein, but the man he found at Eisenstein's apartment was Alfredo, a tenor and an old lover of Rosalinda's who was visiting her when Frank arrived. Alfredo pretends to be Eisenstein to protect Rosalinda's reputation. The endless melodic flow of Strauss's score was caressed by the orchestra under conductor Scott Schoonover, the chorus under chorus master Benedetta Orsi, and all the individual singers. Stage director Mark Fryman brought clarity and hilarity to the complicated action. He took his own direction in the role of Frank. As mistress and servant, Karen Kanakis's Rosalinda and Carla Hughes's Adele exhibit admirably contrasting charms. Thomas Gunther's Eisenstein was a sympathetic but believable victim of Jacob Lassiter's shrewd Dr. Falca. Brandon Scott Russell's Alfredo was an effective send-up of a famous Italian tenor. Ksenia Berestovskaya fully embodied the crustiness of Prince Arlovsky. Jonathan Ritchie as Frosch, Jason Greer as Dr. Blind, Leanne Schuring as Sally, and Michael Olkers as Ivan were solid contributors to the comedy. Scott Lobel's scenic design created impressive spaces for Eisenstein's apartment, Arlovsky's ball, and the prison where all the complications are resolved. J.C. Krejcik's costumes made the ball truly festive with opulent designs and shrewd color coordination. Natalie Arco's lighting, Laura Skraska's props, and Jessica Dana's wigs and makeup all enhanced the look of a great start to winter opera season. Indeed, so we can look forward to even more wonderful things. But this was lovely, and I like that music. Let's hear it. The theater world hears much talk today about immersive theater. I'm not entirely sure what that means. Like most terms in the arts, it can expand and contract to contain whatever the speaker has in mind. But surely, RS Productions' current offering in the Kranzberg Arts Center qualifies. Chairs have been arranged in a square, no set. Lights, so we are all lighted, but no design to them. Sound is designed, very importantly so, by Mark Kelly. Heather Tucker marshals the properties. In the middle of the square, or sometimes at an edge or a corner, or sitting with the audience, is Nancy Nye, the narrator. She narrates the story of her childhood and youth, when her mother attempted suicide more than once, and what she tried to do to help her mother. She came up with the idea of making a list of things that make life worth living, of every brilliant thing, as the play's title puts it. The list grows and grows. Other people add to it, make copies of it. 
Did her mother look at it? Did it help? The narrator grows up, falls in love, marries, separates, and the list stays with her, or more accurately, disappears and reappears. We were each given slips of paper with numbered sentences on them when we entered. At relevant points in the story, Nye calls out a number. One of us reads the sentence with that number. Sometimes she engages in conversation with an audience member who may or may not have something to read. It all works well and pleasantly enough, and the story gets told. Duncan McMillan with Johnny Donahoe wrote Every Brilliant Thing. Tom Kopp directed it. Nye's control of the evening is careful, responsive, and convincing as the narrator. The evening is storytelling, not theater, even with the brief exchanges with the audience, which call attention to themselves and break the connection with the story, Nye gets the connection back. The story is told. And told very well. I really enjoyed it. Good. In the works is the umbrella title of the most recent undertaking of Shakespeare Festival St. Louis. It's a month-long residency in the Grandel Theater featuring three contemporary plays whose basis is in the works of Shakespeare. On our last program, I raved about the first offering in the series, Into the Breaches. This time, I will rave about A Most Outrageous Fit of Madness, a new play for young audience inspired by the Comedy of Errors and written for the festival's education tour. When this review hits cable in the web, there will be one more performance on the Saturday after Thanksgiving. I recommend it unreservedly, even if you don't have an elementary schooler to take with you. There's plenty for an adult to enjoy, too, because the adaptation by Nancy Bell is so smart and funny, and the production directed by Gary Lynn Barker is such a splendid realization of the script. Shakespeare's play, set in the ancient world, is about a pair of identical twin boys and their servants, also identical twin boys, who were all shipwrecked by a storm at sea. Everyone survived, but both sets of twins and their parents were separated. The master-servant pairs grew up in different cities. When both sets of twins end up in the same place, mistaken identities produce hilarity. In Bell's version, a tsunami at a California truck stop splits up a family with identical twin sons and identical twin daughters. The father raises a son and a daughter in one city. The mother does the same in another. Neither half of the family knows that the other survived the catastrophe. After seven years, the families meet again at another truck stop on their way to Missouri, where they plan to view the 2017 eclipse in the zone of totality. Productions of the Comedy of Errors frequently cast one actor as both masters and another as both servants. That approach would have been confusing in a play for young audiences, but the festival's production draws on the tradition by casting Michael James Reed as both the father and the mother. The mother's wig and the vivid characterization of both parents make them easily distinguishable in Reed's virtuosic performance. The brothers and sisters are unquestionably kids of this time, thanks to Bell's script and the delightfully youthful performances by Erica Flowers Roberts, Carl Hawkins, Ryan Lawson Meskey, and Jen Sinan. They can pass as twins, thanks to Michelle Friedman Seiler's flamboyant costumes. Marjorie and Peter Speck's scenic design is flashy and flexible and well-supported by Joe Clapper's lighting and Kareem Deem's sound. In the Works has been a great success. I hope it's back next year. Yeah, and this was delightful. Colorful, cartoonish, and very, very clever. 
I really enjoyed it. If you're on Twitter and Instagram, you can find us there too. You can follow us on Twitter at Two on the Isle and be among the first to find out about our uploaded reviews to YouTube and any other special news that we have to announce. Plus, on Instagram, you can see some sneak peeks at the shows we've just gotten video for before the next episode. And you can watch all of the reviews every two weeks on our Instagram TV feed when you follow us. Again, follow us on Twitter and Instagram by looking for Two on the Isle, all one word, and watch our reviews on IGTV. Just look in the bio section on Instagram. I don't know if Minnesota Norwegian Lutherans ever take <laughs> offense at the jokes made about them. As far as I know, Garrison Keillor didn't get hate mail or death threats. I guess it's that Minnesota nice thing. The jokes are not cruel or even mean-spirited. Yes, there is aggression in all humor, but it seems to be buried pretty deep here. Anyway, the church basement ladies have returned to the Playhouse at Westport Plaza. It's December 1959 in their small Minnesota town, and playwright Greta Grosch has prepared for them a Christmas musical comedy with such songs by Drew Jansen as Reindeer Rendezvous and the title number, Away in the Basement. The ladies are preparing food for the church's Christmas pageant and are still cleaning up some dishes left from the annual Ludafisk dinner. If you know about Ludafisk, you may enjoy the church basement ladies more. The usual pecking order continues in the kitchen. Mrs. Lars Stustad presides and preserves tradition in its full and complete details. Peggy Billow nails the character perfectly and lovingly. Leanne Matthews, who also assisted director Emily Klinger, plays the active and efficient Mrs. Elroy Engelson, probably next in line to take over if Mrs. Snustad ever retires. Mrs. Engelson's daughter Beverly is with her, helping out learning the traditions, played by Holland Gale, who rolls her eyes at her mother a lot and complains that at 15 she is too old to play Mary in the children's nativity pageant. Mrs. Gilmerson keeps running to the store to pick up what she's forgotten. Rosemary Watts gives the character exactly the right physicality. Michael Jokers plays the pastor. His wife died a couple of years ago, and the mother hen, Mrs. Snoostad, worries that he seems to be paying too much attention to a new teacher in town and in the church. Joker's fine voice adds to the group singing, guided by music director Joe Dreyer. Scenic designer Erico Zaffarano's kitchen set remains, lit by Michael Sullivan. Risa Crozier's costumes and wigs complete the 50s look. Wendy Shorthays choreographed the occasional dances. The cast maintains credible Minnesota speech, credit dialect coach Pam Recamp. I had a pleasant time in that church basement kitchen. Well, I, I don't have the background to appreciate a lot of the humor, but I certainly appreciated the work of the entire cast. Yes, they were good. Let's hear them sing. Sage's contribution to the Faustival is an adaptation of Christopher Marlowe's Dr. Faustus, 
The adapter, John Wolbers, allows himself great freedom to make the story relevant to a contemporary audience. At the same time, he is deeply respectful of Marlowe's work and remarkably successful in his own right. A key sign of Rolber's esteem for his source is that he has emulated Marlowe's style by writing in blank verse. The modernity of Wolber's language differs from the Elizabethan sound of Marlowe's, but that's fine. Wolber's plot and characters also have a foot in the past and a foot in the present. This mixture of times places the action in a unique period of its own, in which nothing can be anachronistic. Like Marlowe's Faustus, Wolber's main character is a scientist, but she's modern, and she's a woman. Part of what sets her on an infernal path is her recognition that discrimination in her society has prevented her from advancing knowledge as far as her abilities should have allowed her. It's to enlighten the world that she resorts to seeking dark powers, but as with her Marlovian predecessor, the ideals of Wolber's Faustus do not keep her from using her powers for unworthy purposes. The complete title of Wolber's play is Dr. Faustus or the Modern Prometheus. The subtitle is the same as in another classic, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Faustus and Frankenstein are both Promethean figures seeking divine knowledge to benefit humanity. In explicitly linking Faustus with Frankenstein, Wolber's raises the question, what monster did Faustus create? For me, the answer is that in making her deal with the devil, Faustus made herself a monster. I don't think I would have reached this insight without prodding from Wolber's subtitle. In her excellent portrayal of Faustus' emotional journey, Ashley Bauman gives equal prominence to the character's ideals and her failings. In a scene freely adapted from Marlowe, Nicole Angeli gives a bravura performance as all seven deadly sins. Other characters with discernible roots in Marlowe are played convincingly by Talisha Katura, Kareem Deans, Joe Hanrahan, Eric Kuhn, Michael Pierce, and Lex Ronan. At one time or another, they all play Mephistopheles, the demon with whom Faustus deals. This devil really is a shapeshifter. The Sate production benefits from Bess Moynihan's set, Dominic Ayling's lighting, Kareen Deem's sound, Liz Henning's costumes, Rachel Tibbetts' props, and Eric Kuhn's fight choreography. Ellie Schwedy's direction is in complete sympathy with Wolber's fascinating script. It's the kind of play I'd like to study as well as watch. Yeah, there was a lot there. That's certainly true. Well, I think it was a fine contribution to the Faustival. Ray Bradbury's 1953 novel Fahrenheit 451 succeeded immediately and continues to be in print and is often referred to. Francois Truffaut's 1966 film installed Bradbury's work even more securely in our common culture. In the late 1970s, Bradbury himself turned it into a play. The play has not been as frequently available as either the novel or the film, but it was performed recently by the Conservatory of Theatre Arts at Webster University. Like novel and film, the play takes place in a future society much like our own. People contentedly watch mindless entertainment on big flat-screen TVs. Books have been banned. Books too often include troubling ideas that can disturb the general contentment. When found, they are burned. Guy Montag burns books professionally. He's called a fireman. Those who once put out fires now start them. 
The play traces the education of Montaigne as he gradually comes to understand that destroying books has destroyed society's understanding of itself, its history, its character, and infantilized it. Because the play is about Montaigne's growing enlightenment, most of his encounters with others are less often dramatic conflicts than small epiphanies. The play rarely catches dramatic fire. Sorry. It is not, therefore, uninteresting. Tim O'Sell is a director who always finds the drama and the interest in a script. So does his cast. Harrison Farmer explored all the troubled facets of Montaigne's evolving understanding. Eleanor Robinson was his troubled, fearful wife. Vivian Luthen, his superior in the fire department, who had her own secret fascination with books. Kayla Braxton played the teenage neighbor who began Montag's education, which was continued by her grandfather, a former English professor played by Bradley Fertitta. Most of the large cast observed the play from the levels of the scaffolding on Star Turner's effectively brutal set, dressed in shabby clothes by costume designer Kayla Page. They then appeared in the play's Elysian Fields closing scene as famous writers of books. Robin Wallace designed the lighting, fires included, along with projections designer Ashton Rust and sound designer Colin Marshall. Brielle Creaser did wigs and makeup. I was a bit surprised by the selection of this play for the Conservatory's main stage fall production, but I can see how well it fits, both as a cultural artifact and as an educational challenge. Uh, it certainly was a challenge, and uh, for me it was met less well than for you. Ah, well, it's too bad. Let's take a look at the St. Louis area theater calendar for the end of November and for December of 2018. Let's start with the dinner theaters. We have the Dinner Detective at the Hotel Lumiere at the Arch Murder Mystery Dinner Show that runs through April 27, 2019. A Christmas Slaying at the Bissell Mansion Murder Mystery Dinner Theater through December 29th. Harm for the Holidays at the Lemp Mansion Comedy Mystery Dinner Theater. And Into the Breaches at St. Louis Festival St. Louis through November 24th. At the Fox Theater in Midtown in Grand Center, we have Aladdin. It runs through November 25th. Away in a Basement, a church basement ladies' Christmas, runs at the Playhouse at Westport Plaza through January 6th. A Most Outrageous Fit of Madness, mounted by Shakespeare Festival St. Louis, runs through November 24th. All is Calm is presented by Mustard Seed Theater through December 16th. Every Brilliant Thing by RS Theatrics runs through December 2nd. A version of A Christmas Story runs at the Rep from November 28th through December 23rd. The Three Sisters at the Webster University Conservatory runs from November 28th through December 9th. Beyond Therapy runs at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville from November 28th through December 2nd. An Act of God will be put on by the New Jewish Theater from November 29th through December 16th. And The Crucible will be mounted by St. Louis University from November 29th through December 2nd. It's a Wonderful Life, a radio play, will be put on in Alton, Illinois by the Bankside Repertory Theater Company from November 29th through December 1st. The Shoemaker and Santa's Elves will be mounted by the Alpha Players on November 29th and 30th. A Christmas Story will be put on by Curtains Up Theater Company in Collinsville, Illinois. That runs from November 29th through December 2nd. A Christmas Carol will be mounted at Lindenwood University from November 29th through December 1st. A version of It's a Wonderful Life will be put on by Wentzville Christian Church from November 29th through December 1st. And the play Tribes will be mounted in the Central West End at the St. Louis Actors Studio from November 30th through December 16th. 
The holiday stop-motion extravaganza parody runs at the Magic Smoking Monkey Theater from November 30th through December 8th. Party at the North Pole will be mounted by Eddie's Fairytale Theater only on December 1st. Wonderland, all... Wonderland, Alice's Rock and Roll Adventure runs by the... <laughs> Wonderland, Alice... Ro Wonderland, Alice's Rock and Roll Adventure is mounted by Metro Theater Company. That starts on December 2nd and runs through December 30th. Christine Ebersall and Billy Stritch, Snowfall, will be put on by the Cabaret Project on December 5th and 6th. The most fabulous story ever told will be mounted by Stray Dog Theater on December 6th through the 22nd. Another version of A Christmas Carol will be mounted by the Fox Theater on December 6th and run through the 9th. A Charlie Brown Christmas will be on stage at the Stiefel Theater on December 6th only. Of Human Kindness will be mounted by the Black Mirror Theater Company on December 6th through the 16th. And finally, a version of A Christmas Carol will be put on by the Looking Glass Playhouse in Lebanon, Illinois from December 6th through the 9th. We'll be watching some of these productions from our two seats on the aisle. And we'll be watching the mail and the email for your thoughts about theater in this program and for items for the calendar. Send them to Two on the Aisle, HEC Media, 3221 McKelvey Road, Bridgeton, Missouri, 63044, or by email to TOTA at HECTV.org. Join us next time on Cable and the Web for successes and failures. We'll see you then. This episode of Two on the Isles producer was Bob Wilcox and the associate producer, Jerry Kowarski. ATC media producer is Paul Langdon. Our hosts this week were Jerry Kowarski and Bob Wilcox. Our television director is Rick Rebelke and the program editor is Jerry Kowarski. Segment editors and videography this week were by Kerry Marks, Paul Langdon, Ben Smith, and Rob Milam. Audios by Paul Langdon. Studio cameras and the teleprompter were operated by Ben Smith and Kerry Marks. The set and lighting by Paul Langdon, Kerry Marks, and Ben Smith. And our theme music is by Daniel McGowan. HEC technical support is by Jane Ballou. And production associate, social media broadcaster, podcast producer, and podcast host is Rod Milam. Two on the Isle was made possible with the support from the Regional Arts Commission of St. Louis. Don't forget, you can find all things Two on the Isle online on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Just go to each social media platform, search for Two on the Isle, and like, subscribe, and follow us there. Thanks for downloading the Two on the Isle podcast. We'll see you next time. This is an HEC Media Podcast.